This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the third episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know, on August 27th, 1896, the shortest war in history was fought between Britain and Zanzibar. Known as the Anglo-Zanzibar War, it lasted between 38 and 45 minutes. Only one British sailor was wounded, while around 500 from the Zanzibar side were killed or wounded. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Our objective was achieved with the utmost precision and dispatch. The Sultan has learned a painful lesson today. That was said by Rear Admiral Harry Rawson, who was the commanding officer of the British forces in the Anglo-Zanzibar War. You know, I love my history facts. Our case this week was suggested by an anonymous listener via Instagram DM. We're in the affluent West London district of Notting Hill this week. Here are five quickfire facts about Notting Hill. Number one. The Notting Hill Carnival is a Caribbean-themed street festival celebrated every August bank holiday. It attracts around 2 million people each year. Number two, serial killer John Christie lived at 10 Rillington Place, which was in Notting Hill. Richard Attenborough played the part of Christie in a 1971 movie about his crimes. Number three, the name Portobello, from the famous Portobello Road, home to the best vintage and antique markets of London, actually honours the capture of Porto Bello from the Spaniards in 1739. Number four, in August and September 1958, Notting Hill was the scene of racially motivated riots. White, working-class teddy boys and others displayed hostility and violence to the black community in the area ten years after HMT Empire Windrush arrived at Tilbury Docks. Teddy boys were a youth subculture. And finally, number five, the famous Notting Hill Bookshop, located on Blenheim Crescent, inspired the bookstore featured in the movie Notting Hill, which Hugh Grant's character William Thacker owned. The approximate population of Notting Hill is 30,500. This story is one that left me scratching my head many times whilst researching it because it has so many unanswered questions. For starters, the location is one associated with such affluence that it seems out of the ordinary for such an atrocity to have occurred there. From what I can tell, murder doesn't happen often in Notting Hill, in modern times anyway. If it does go on, then it's not widely reported. Notting Hill is the definition of a gentrified neighbourhood. Remember those race riots I mentioned that occurred in 1958? They came on the back of Caribbean migrants settling in London in the aftermath of the Second World War. 
German-born British sociologist Ruth Glass coined the term gentrification to describe the less fortunate London population being forced out of their homes as newer, more upper-class areas were developed. Her 1960 book London's Newcomers, The West Indian Migrants, is an excellent place to start if you want to learn more about that topic. But the streets that, in more recent times, whisper tales of luxury and tranquility now bear the weight of a recently dark past. The illusion of safety and, to an extent, invincibility has been shattered. Having said that, it may only be the locals that feel that way. This story's coverage, as with so many I cover, is so lacking that you'd be hard-pressed not to consider it a crime. I'll begin by introducing a woman called Bella Tungol Nicandro. Born on February 8, 1945, and with Filipino origins, Bella was 76 and well into her twilight years, although given how sharp she was, you'd never have known it. I did my best to find out precisely what family Bella had and whereabouts in the Philippines she was from, but I'll be honest, I struggled. I know for sure that she had a daughter named Roshina, but other than she had a large family, that's where my knowledge ends. Bella possessed a quiet grace that endeared her to all who crossed her path, including her neighbours in the apartment building she shared with them on St Luke's Road. It was a common sight to see Bella pause for a stop and chat on her way home from, say, buying groceries. As she held her shopping bags, which were likely filled with fresh local ingredients that she'd later turn into a delicious meal, Bella would engage in heartfelt conversations with those she bumped into. Showing a genuine interest in their lives, her neighbours thought the world of her. She seems like the kind of woman who would brighten up anyone's day by just smiling and saying hello to you. I took from that not only that Bella was a wonderful, kind and warm person, but that she massively helped instill a sense of community within the building, something that so many of us in these modern times lack. Be honest with yourself, when was the last time you said hello to your neighbour? I only just introduced myself to mine the other day, and he's lived next door to me for, what, a good six months? It's just the way of the world now. At the time of this story, August 2021, it was a wonderful time to be a part of Bella's family. Her daughter, Rashina, had recently got engaged, so wedding planning mode was firmly activated. One can only imagine how proud Bella must have felt knowing she was soon going to see her daughter walk down the aisle. Sadly, that joyous occasion would not be witnessed by Bella Nicandro. The family matriarch had her life cruelly taken away from her by an act so random in nature that I had to triple-check my research just to make sure I had the chain of events written down correctly. The culprit was a 23-year-old man called Aaron Cook, who, despite being a resident of the same building as Bella, was not known to her. The onus for that, based on what I found out about Aaron, likely lies squarely with him. Hailing from Ryslip, also in West London, and roughly 12 miles west and slightly north of Notting Hill, Aaron first attended Bishop Winnington Ingram, a Church of England primary school in the area. Not too much is known about his early life, especially when it comes to his family, but from what I can make out, he lived with his parents and brother, although his grandparents appear to have been closer to him than his mum and dad. For reasons unknown, Aaron was essentially raised by his grandparents as a result, which may or may not have had detrimental effects on him as he grew older. I won't speculate on why he was raised that way, if it's true, but it's worth bearing in mind as his story progresses throughout the episode. 
He attended Bishop Ramsey, another Church of England school, for his secondary education, and for the most part, he was just a run-of-the-mill young lad. He had a group of mates he bantered with and achieved fairly average grades, but it sounds like the old classic situation of he just does enough to get by and doesn't push himself report that so many, myself included, got at school. I'd describe Aaron as an in-betweener. He wasn't mega popular, but also wasn't majorly disliked. He was just another student. One thing that stood out about Aaron, though, was his height. One's confidence is always low in high school, but you can imagine the teasing he got as a result. I'm sure he laughed it off most of the time and maybe even gave a little bit back, but perhaps that only helped cage the animal that would one day take the life of an innocent woman going about her daily life as she always did. Now this next part is interesting. Growing up, Aaron was invited to the odd house party, again, as we pretty much all were. He was never one to give in to peer pressure, so when his mates began experimenting with underage drinking and drug use, I'm talking weed, nothing major, he never took part. He never judged his mates for experimenting, it just wasn't for him. That would soon change as he grew into adulthood, as you'll find out soon. It may have been when he went to uni that Aaron began experimenting with drugs, because his behaviour throughout those years has been described as odd, bizarre and unusual. Words I'm well aware are all synonyms of each other. Those were the first warning signs of what would later be diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. I want to be careful with the language I use here because I recall one previous listener saying that I had a habit of using outdated language. Therefore, I'm going to reference the NHS's website and reveal some of the most common symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. Hallucinations, delusions, muddled thoughts and speech, losing interest in everyday activities, not wanting to look after yourself and your needs, wanting to avoid people, including friends, and feeling disconnected from your feelings or emotions. I say this not for sympathy or to trivialise the condition, but to offer insight into Aaron's mental state as he transitioned from a teenager into an adult. Aaron has a full history of treatment in hospitals for his condition, and he appears to have been well known to mental health care workers and hospital staff alike. Some reports suggest that his condition was not taken seriously by both the workers and Aaron, which made me wonder if the seriousness of his condition wasn't sufficiently put across, or if Aaron simply ignored the advice voluntarily, or perhaps involuntarily. The 23-year-old would eventually be kept in hospital under the Mental Health Act 1983 in 2020, with hallucinations being the most severe of his symptoms at that time. Aaron reportedly complained to the hospital staff that he'd taken some bad drugs, including LSD and cannabis, which had in turn caused him to be detained. After being treated, the doctors came to the conclusion that Aaron's by then heavy drug use had not caused his condition, but they had brought it to the surface far quicker than if he'd remained sober. Five months before the events of this story, Aaron was seen by an early intervention team, a team of healthcare professionals set up specifically to work with people who've experienced their first episode of psychosis. Psychosis is the name given when someone loses some contact with reality by way of seeing or hearing things that aren't there and believing things that aren't true. Again, that description comes directly from the NHS's website, don't at me. 
This time, Aaron expressed concerns that he had been cursed because people were after him. He told the doctors that he had received several messages from strangers insisting that he rape and kill people, but it simply wasn't the case. Aaron's conviction only came in January of this year, so it's a fairly new case this, but I imagine there will be an independent review into his treatment at mental health facilities, which will probably be released at some point in the future. That is conjecture for the record, but it's logical. Based on cases I've researched previously, I'd be extremely shocked if that didn't happen. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The one key takeaway that we need to focus on for this story is that, at some point, Aaron stopped taking his medication in the weeks leading up to August 14th, 2021. On top of that, he continued to smoke weed heavily, which, as we know by now, only made his condition worse. August 14th was a Saturday, and it will have begun like any other weekend for Bella Nicandro. She may have nipped to the shop for a few bits, or spoke to some family members back home. Perhaps she was thinking about the upcoming wedding. Whatever it was, as the day turned into the early afternoon, all of her plans suddenly changed. A nightmare was about to descend on St Luke's Road, the likes of which had never been seen. That morning, Aaron smoked a spliff, which, in his opinion, induced a psychotic episode. It would later be revealed that, as before, the drug had not induced the episode, rather it had aggravated it. Aaron would message one of his old schoolmates that morning as things began getting progressively worse with each hit he took. In one message he wrote, You should respect me, because you know I'm God. I'm about to go out there and rape and kill someone, and no one can do a thing about it, because I'm God, bitch. Fast forward to 2.10pm that afternoon. Neighbours in the building were disturbed when they heard a series of loud screams coming from the top floor flat, Bella's flat. Wondering what was going on, personal trainer Jediah peered into the hallway and spotted a young man walking down the stairs. His grey tracksuit was stained red with blood, as were his hands. Spotting Jediah, Aaron Cook pointed a bloody hand at him and said something to the effect of, you're next. Aaron continued to make his way down the stairs with Jediah in pursuit. Aaron was met by Faiso Abdi Aziz and her two young children, who had just arrived home after being out that morning. With a knife in his hand, Aaron grabbed Faiso's four-year-old son and pointed the weapon at the back of his neck. Putting her own life at risk, Faiso instinctively grabbed the knife and attempted to wrestle it from Aaron's grip. At first, she succeeded, but before long, Aaron had the weapon back in his hand. Thankfully, he opted to walk away, and neither Faiso nor her children were harmed, with the exception of a few minor cuts to the brave mother's hands. The little boy's sister did her best to prevent him from being stabbed by pleading with Aaron to get off him. Don't kill my brother, she said, in what must have been such a heartbreaking moment for Faiso. By that point, Aaron was screaming, I am God! I am God! before he was suddenly taken by surprise and restrained by Jediah and two other locals. The police were called and arrived at the scene shortly after. With Aaron in custody, the officers at the scene proceeded to sweep the building. Eventually, they ended up breaking into Bella's flat, where, inside, the 76-year-old lay with injuries to her face, neck, right arm, lower leg and left armpit. 
Aaron had stabbed Bella 14 times with the knife and left her for dead. She did her utmost to defend herself, given the volume of defensive wounds on her hands and arms, but she was no match for the much younger and stronger Aaron. Despite still being alive when the paramedics arrived, there was nothing they could do to save Bella's life. She was pronounced dead at the scene not long after. Jediah recalled some of the vulgar things Aaron said whilst in custody, such as, Did you like the way I killed her though? And, Did you see the way I killed her though? As if he hadn't already caused enough devastation, Aaron was reportedly racially abusive towards the police officers that took him to the local hospital to have his injuries treated. It really does take a special kind of person to work on the front line like that. My hat goes off to them, honestly. Initially held in a secure hospital rather than a remand prison, it apparently took 14 months from August 2021 to October 2022 for Aaron's psychosis to dissipate sufficiently for him to be able to enter a plea for his murder charge. Opting to plead not guilty to Bella's murder, Aaron instead pleaded guilty to manslaughter by way of diminished responsibility. His sentencing took place on January 23rd, 2023, with trial judge Alexia Duran receiving some detailed insight from forensic psychiatrist Dr. Bradley Hillier. It was regarding Aaron's condition and mental state at the time of Bella's murder. Dr. Hillier explained that Aaron was on the border of having an insanity defence available, and on top of that, it needed noting that mental health workers had not taken his condition seriously enough in the weeks before the attack. The doctor said, It is, in my view, a core tenet of psychiatry that if someone is presenting with psychotic beliefs and has a history of treatment in hospital, that when they start talking about bizarre experiences, it should be taken seriously. Sadly, in this case, Mr. Cook's team, in my view, confused capacity with severe mental health disorder, and Mr. Cook should have had significant treatment by the time this occurred. I do not think Mr. Cook can be held responsible for that aspect of his care. I do not think he was in a position to realise that he needed help. Dr. Martin Locke, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, agreed with Dr. Hillier's verdict and went on to reiterate that the drugs Aaron took only exacerbated his psychosis and were not the cause of it, although he should bear some responsibility for taking them in the first place. After assessing all the evidence, including the psychiatrist's reports, Judge Duran decided against handing Aaron a prison sentence. Instead, she opted to detain him under Section 37-41 of the Mental Health Act 1983. For killing Bella Nicandro, Aaron Cook received a hospital order. In her closing statement, Judge Duran said, no sentence I impose on you will ever feel sufficient to Bella's family, who have lost their beloved member in the most appalling circumstances. The evidence from both doctors is that you had been experiencing a psychotic episode for some period. I am not persuaded there is a need for a penal sentence here. I accept Dr. Hillier's evidence that you were close to an insanity defence. It will be a matter for the Secretary of State and the Mental Health Tribunal when, if ever, you'll be released. An amazing crowdfunding page was set up by Bella's daughter, Rushina, which raised an outstanding £10,200 to fund her funeral, repatriation and expenses. Bella's funeral took place on Friday, October 8th, 2021 at Our Lady of Lords, the Catholic parish church for Wanstead in East London. 
This episode is dedicated to her memory. And that was the story of Bella Nicandro and British murderer Aaron Cook. Thanks again, anonymous listener, for suggesting that case. Did Aaron receive the correct sentence, in your opinion? Should he have been sent to prison rather than hospital? I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this case. If you're listening on Spotify, there is a section at the bottom where you can let me know what you thought about it. Or you can comment on the social media posts or reach out to me. Just give me a message. I've got three new reviews to read out this week. Ian McNally left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Very Engaging Podcast. It reads, Stuart is able to condense the facts of each case in a very informative way and this tends to make each episode much more absorbing and engaging. Also, he does not seem to feel the need to include swearing to get his opinions across. Heather Jade left a five-star review on Apple Podcast titled Great Podcast. It reads, You are by far one of my favourite podcasters. Thank you. And finally, Claire Louise left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled My Favourite By Far. It reads, I absolutely love listening to this podcast. I like the down-to-earth nature and never feel like anything is left out. You are great company. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ian, Heather and Claire for leaving the show such lovely reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, hello and welcome to my latest Patreon members, Lisa, Reedy and Linda. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout-out too. If you want the shout-out, that is. If you want to remain anonymous, just let me know and I'll make a note of it. And that does it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.